0: Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine,
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the March edition of FNS Unplugged. I'm Pietro Bortoletto, media editor for FNS Reports. And as you know, I'm joined by my two co-hosts today, Blake and Daylon. Guys, good to be back with both of you. How are you? Doing great. Glad to be here. How are you all? I'm very well, guys. Uh, Glad to have a special guest on the show today. That's exactly it. Today, we have kind of the unique privilege of being joined by one of the paper's authors. Uh, Dr. Annika Sinha is a resident at the Cleveland Clinic and the lead author on a paper published in FNS Reports entitled The Effect of Estrogen Therapy on Spermatogenesis in Transgender Women. Dr. Sinha, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here and talk a little bit more about this work. Excited that everybody else is excited too.
1: It's not often that we see transgender research in fertility and sterility. It's not often that we see basic science research in fertility and sterility. So it's nice when we have the best of both worlds and it's even better when it's a trainee whose paper we're talking and highlighting. Um, Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about what was the impetus for this project? Since this isn't usually something that rises to the consciousness of the busy OBGYN resident.
2: I appreciate that. This project was the brainchild of my mentor who I've known since I was in medical school, Dr. Cecile Ferrando, who's well known in the world of um, gender affirming surgery. Uh, And she actually came to me with this project early on PGY1 year. She had been doing a lot of work, um, building up her uh, gender affirming surgery practice here at the Cleveland Clinic and wanted to look at outcomes, especially related to um, orchiectomy specimens in her transgender women population. So she had this idea of looking at this, the pathology reports and seeing if we could see any sort of trend in these like r- reports as related to people's um, previous hormone use as they underwent their transition. And that's kind of how this all started. And then from there, it kind of snowballed into this, this really cool idea project that we have here today.
1: So let's talk about it. You say hormone use. So tell us a little bit about what hormones these women were on and how they may potentially impact spermatogenesis for the listener who may not be familiar with transgender therapy.
2: So most of our women at this institution um, were referred to Dr. Ferrando for their specific gender affirming surgeries. So they had often gotten their hormone um, supplementation at some sort of outside hospital. Most of these women were on either estrogen or spernalactone. Spernalactone being the anti-androgen um, agent of choice. Um, it was unclear about exactly what the dosages were for each specific patient, but this is kind of the general theme we saw in this specific patient population. According to WPATH guidelines, women who are pursuing gender-affirming surgery utilize hormone use, if not medically contraindicated, for at least one year before they pursue their surgery.
1: And what were you guys hoping to find specifically in this cohort of transgender women who were either exposed to estrogen and or spironolactone and now having an orchiectomy?
2: We were hoping to see that patients who were on increasing durations of gender-affirming hormone use might have some changes in their pathology reports in regard to their orchiectomy specimens. We thought it would we would see some sort of effect on spermatogenesis and other maybe surrogate markers of fertility.
1: And how many of these specimens actually had any evidence of spermatogenesis?
2: Actually, more than I thought. Um, In the total, so we had a cohort of about 85 patients. In those patients, about 24% of people um, had some evidence of spermatogenesis. Of course, it was on a range. Um, And about 8.2% of people actually had active spermatogenesis, as defined by our pathology department.
1: And the data that you kind of discussed a little bit in your introduction sounds like this has been looked at before. Does this fall within the range of what others have seen with exposure to estrogen ahead of orchiectomy?
2: A little bit, the range is actually pretty wide. There are about, I would say around 20 articles or so that have been published so far that I could find that were kind of related to this topic, all using varying degrees of measuring fertility, whether it was from spher analysis or orchiectomy specimens or whatnot. Some articles seem to suggest that this, this use of hormones was maybe a reversible effect on fertility markers, others, not so much. Ours somehow falls a little bit in the middle. We, Based on what we found, we couldn't definitely say that it was truly affecting fertility on the long run, but we couldn't say that it was totally okay to never consider maybe some sort of counseling beforehand.
1: I mean, and that's where I think this article is really helpful aside from just having great pathologic correlation to some of these clinical interventions. What does this mean for the... REI who happens to have a transgender woman that wants to consider fertility preservation ahead of orchiectomy. mean, it sounds like a lot of them consider fertility preservation, about 80% actually thought about it, but only less than 10% actually went through with it. Yeah. So that 10% that are considering going through it, what do you think the REI needs to know to be able to counsel these women effectively about their chances of having sperm that's useful down the road?
2: I think this should be an early discussion. I think Not only should it be something that patients are exposed to and talk to about right before their orchiectomy, but also kind of when they're starting these hormones. Since we really don't know the effect of these hormones long-term, in our specific paper, we were looking at hormone use for up to seven years. Um, Long-term data just isn't present yet. And I think as we're kind of looking at these specific patients and how to cater to them the best of our abilities, having a multidisciplinary approach with REI, even primary Care providers and anyone else that might be on their journey, it's really important to talk to these patients very early on so they can make a decision for themselves on when and how they want to pursue this.
3: Thanks for sharing that data. That's that's very interesting. So a question that I had about this was now, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but spermatogenesis was evaluated pathologically, is that right? Just the presence of sperm and testicular tissue. So um was there any concern or do you think there's any concern about whether or not actual the sperm parameters would be affected in this so i've got a patient who's wanting to start hormonal treatment and i'm wanting to tell the patient hey you should consider freezing sperm now versus 7 years down the road after being on hormones i can't help but think that it probably adversely affects spermatogenesis in some sense in terms of the quality of the sperm what did you guys discuss that or talk about that at all
2: briefly i think what was a little bit difficult in this paper we were using these histopathologic parameters as markers of fertility, which actually in our realm is not really the gold standard. So we were assuming that spermatogenesis that we were seeing in these slides would actually relate to like clinical fertility outcomes. So I think in that way, we didn't really discuss it in this specific paper, but I think it brings up a really interesting point where of course, maybe starting this, this conversation and having patients undergo Whatever cryopreservation or any other methods that they want to use before they are seven years down the line of their therapy treatment seems totally valid and something that we might need to be pursuing more aggressively.
4: Yeah, and I for me it was a uh, really affirming to see what I think echoes some of the more recent studies, previous studies that had been done. I know there was one in urology showing that it was uh, not. I don't know about it, reversible. But um, comparing semen parameters between trans women who had and had not undergone the gender affirming hormone treatment, the semen parameters were identical um, after the women who were on the uh, hormone had gone off them. So it seems like a lot of evidence to suggest that this is reversible, but I, I was also struck as uh, Pietro alluded to, the the disparity in those who were interested in those who actually sought the fertility preservation, because it's such a big gap there. And I'm of the mind that that's changing, right? I think that the people are being educated as to their options earlier, and more will be going through with that moving forward, especially as the stigma starts to to lessen against trans rights and choices. But also another thing that's changing, I looked here in the the results you're mean age was 39 plus or minus 16 years. And like, that's another thing that I think we really have to be mindful of that, that number is going to go way down, right? And and, right. and kids are becoming aware of their choices um, and are, are, are acting on them at an earlier age. So I wanted to kind of ask where, where you're thinking in, in moving forward. If you were to build on this study, it's kind of a new landscape. We're talking about a different patient population, a younger population to look at maybe how it's affecting the testes when when they're starting the hormone treatment at a young age. And also the bigger question of like epigenetics. There's all these big, big questions that are really tough to address in a human population and human studies. So which is to say, there's a lot out there to be discovered and described. I'm not expecting you to have the answers, but where do you go with a study like this? This information you could tell your patients now, but where do you go in terms of the next question?
2: I think our next steps would include a bigger study and a study with maybe some, some matching and like a, a really nice control group, especially since we have patients in our specific cohort who underwent um, genetic-affirming hormone therapy, they underwent their orchiectomy, we looked at their specific orchiectomy specimens, but we didn't have any comparison group. And I think that was something that would be really interesting to see, especially if we're thinking about patients, especially on the younger side. We also looked at other medical illnesses that they may have while we didn't find in our small population that marijuana use and other things um, were affecting these specific parameters. I think just in general, with that being more common, legalizing these things, um, maybe our younger populations don't have diabetes, heart disease, things, how all those specific conditions should be represented in our work. And I think I agree with you completely. I think this might be a a little bit of an older population as we kind of move forward.
1: Well, with that, we'll leave it. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for taking time of what I'm sure is a very busy week in residency to join us and discuss your paper. Thanks for considering FNS Reports for publishing this work. Our listeners can go to FNS Reports and read the full article. I think it's really a very interesting read and informative for us that are increasingly taking care of transgender women in our practices.
2: I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for your time.
1: All right, Daylon, unfortunately, you don't have the benefit of having someone present your paper like I did, so you actually had to read it and think about it.
3: Yeah, you didn't do any prep work for that. I'm over here thinking, I'm studying for boards, and Pietro's got the easy way out of this. Work smart,
1: not hard. (laughs) Daylon, tell us a little bit about your paper in FNS Science. Well, uh, following with the, I guess, semi-theme
4: that we're going with in this episode, I went with another transgender story. Um, Little known fact, or maybe widely known amongst you and your peers, 1.4 million adults in the United States alone self-identify as transgender. Um, And that number is probably actually higher uh, when you consider there is still a bit of the residue of the stigma attached to coming out and uh, being yourself in modern society. And I think it's becoming really salient to the medical field because these gender affirming surgeries and hormone treatments may have medical implications. And it's important uh, for your patient population to be able to advise them on what those may be. I'm speaking about a paper specifically talking about reversibility of testosterone-induced acyclicity after testosterone cessation in a transgender mouse model, okay? So we're talking about transgender men. And this is important because oftentimes, and this has happened, many times, although it was big news about a decade ago, that these trans men will go off the hormones and decide to cycle again, either to, to carry a, a pregnancy of their own or to um, undergo superovulation uh, hyperstimulation, and oocyte um, recovery. Uh, and there's a lot of anecdotal reports uh, of the reversibility of this, but they're varied in terms of the timing anywhere from one to six months before you resuming menses in one study. There was another study uh, most recently. I mean, there's many studies, but the most recent one I'll cite in FNS uh, in 2019 in the context of ART from Angela Lung Group at Boston IVF and Beth Israel. They looked at trans men versus, and this is why it was a well-done study, looked at trans men versus cisgender females. Um, and what they found was essentially equivalent outcomes in terms of oocyte yield. And that also uh, was very affirming and I think uh, a relief to patients and providers. But the details there, it was a little bit murky. It was anywhere from one to 12 months after stopping the testosterone therapy before they reduce menses. So I think the question that remains to be understood here is the timing. I think if you wanted to advise your patients, if your patient comes to you and says, hey, you know, how long should I be off the tee before I want to start cycling again, go through a cycle? You want to have an answer. or You want to have a window. And to get to that, the group of Molly Moravec, who's at Ann Arbor, Michigan, they developed this uh, mouse model, which is really quite straightforward and basic. Um, but I think important for understanding the timing, right? Um, And it allows for you to have a well-controlled model to understand this. And it was straightforward. As I said, female mice were subcutaneously implanted with this testosterone enanthate or placebo. And then after six weeks, these pellets were removed and then the mice were followed for four estrous cycles to see when they resume cyclicity. And the upshot here is that they resumed cycling within a week and there were no detectable differences observed in the follicle count, corporal lutea formation, hormone levels. They didn't look at litter size and reproductive output capacity, but presumably those things were all equivalent to. So yes, I think this is a, a, a really, I wouldn't say a pivotal seminal landmark study, but I think a really important measure in a controlled system where you can address this question, get some idea of the timing, and also it's a platform in which I think other scientists can build to ask similar or related questions that will have relevance to the trans community. So a really nice, straightforward study from FNS Science from about a year ago now, but
1: uh, it's worth a read. If you didn't see it the first time, have a look now. There's two interesting footnotes for those who do actually venture into reading it. Fortunately, they had to sacrifice one of the testosterone treated mice because of vaginal prolapse, um, which is a thing I didn't know that could happen in mice. And I guess it makes sense that you would sacrifice it since you can't really repair or reduce it. So that was interesting. And then there was one difference, Daylon, that you didn't mention between the mice exposed to testosterone versus placebo. And it was that they had increased clitoral area, mice who were treated with testosterone. And that was persistent beyond the pellet removal, which I thought was interesting but you raise a very good point about we don't know a lot about the future reproductive potential of these mice. We don't know about future litter size, the health of those pups. And I imagine that this is what this group is looking at next. It's a nice logical extension. See what the reproductive outcomes are in the in this, this exactly very carefully phenotyped group of mice.
4: Yes, I would say that that is a bit of a gap that they're certainly uh, building to fill, but I would also extend that to say that we need to move into an experimental model that is closer to human. I would like to see uh, studies in primate, macaque, or a similar uh, primate model, because, you know, obviously mice are pretty much, I don't know if you guys have ever worked with mice in a reproductive capacity, but they're bulletproof. I mean, you really have to mess with the system to make them have a reduced litter size. So, it's, I think, important, but not a overwhelming Result When you see that these mice bounce back in a week, you have to see how, how really relevant that is to um, human reproductive biology. Blake, what do you think? Well, two things. For one, I share
3: the um, same concern about the sacrificed mouse with vaginal prolapse. Uh, you all can't see my notes here, but that's like the one sentence I have highlighted in this paper. I just couldn't get past it. And I just I thought that was an interesting thing, but, um, on a serious note too, and not necessarily for our transgender population, but I don't know how at Cornell, you know, how many patients you see with this, but, um, in Oklahoma, we, for some reason have a lot of patients who are prescribed testosterone, uh, both male and female. Um, these are prescribed by I'm, I'm presuming well-meaning physicians, and they're like, "Oh, you're tired. Well, take this testosterone pellet. You're probably low in testosterone." And it just blows my mind as an REI, the lack of of thought that goes into anything else, really. Um, but specifically fertility, because these patients don't perceive this as a medication at times. And when I ask them, "Are you taking any medications?" the testosterone pellet that's in their butt, they don't really consider a medication. But then I go to scan them and I look at their labs and I'm like, what in the world is going like, this just does not look good. And I've had to cancel IVF cycles because patients withhold this information. And I found this paper particularly interesting because uh, at what point do you say, well, we can reschedule your IVF cycle at X time point. Uh, Now, obviously we're comparing a mouse to a human. So it's a little bit different, but at least I, I do think it sheds some positivity in terms of knowing that it's reversible and um, you know whether or not the quality of the oocyte is affected is also something I question, but I just have so many
4: patients who have these testosterone pellets, so. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's almost considered like a supplement nowadays, but um, as you said, it's, it's an important measure. And I do wanna just uh, underscore your last point there is that the long-term consequences, epigenetics, something that should be considered as we just talked about with the guests, uh, but, you know, another takeaway as a scientist here talking to you two, what you gather from these stories, the increased clitoral area and the vaginal prolapse, I get it now. It's because that's the first thing your patients are going to say when they come in. They're going to say, what about the vaginal prolapse? Um, but, you know, hopefully that's unique to mice. Let's, let's at least cross our fingers on that
1: one. That's the nice thing about mice. They don't really fill out prescaney surveys um, or patient satisfaction surveys. So you don't really hear about it. <laughs> Blake, why don't you take us home with your article from FNS Reviews this month? Thanks, Pietro. So my paper
3: from FNS Reviews that I'll be discussing is um, not quite on the theme that we've been going with because there wasn't one to fit the bill. But I do think this is a rather interesting paper. So we're going to we're going to talk about um, does ICSI sperm injection, improve live birth rate when compared to conventional in vitro fertilization and non male factor infertility, a systematic review and meta-analysis. and this was produced by a group out of France. I apologize. I'm going to mispronounce the, the names, but, uh, Bantel Finette as well as Thomas Frior. This is as good as I can get. I apologize if I mispronounce that. Um, but just want to briefly go over a little bit of background. ICSI was introduced in 1992, and this revolutionized success rates for patients who had male factor infertility that would otherwise have utilized conventional insemination and had poor fertilization rates. So over recent decades, ICSI has surpassed conventional fertilization usage, and in some countries is actually the sole method of fertilization. Just to um, drive this point home, the ASRM recommends ICSI for patients who have male factor or those who do not have male factor and have either prior fertilization failure in an IVF cycle, oocytes that have undergone in vitro maturation, or previously cryopreserved oocytes or patients who are doing PGTM. So the authors discussed that the heterogeneity as well as limitations of several prior observational and retrospective studies have yielded poor quality of evidence and thus inability to draw evidence from these said studies about what to do in non-male factor infertility patients and doing ICSI. That was until recently when there was a rather large prospective RCT by Dang et al. That was published in Lancet in 2021, ultimately showed that there was no benefit of ICSI over conventional insemination um, in fertile couples in which their male partner had normal sperm count uh, or sperm parameters. So because of these conflicting studies, the conflicting data, and the uh, increased utilization of ICSI for non-male factor infertility, the authors wanted to do this analysis. So the primary outcomes that they looked at were live birth per cycle and also live birth rate per transfer. Secondary outcomes that they looked at were clinical pregnancy rate, fertilization rate, and proportion of cycles resulting in fert failure. There was a little over 1,700 studies analyzed, but ultimately they had whittled it down to about 21 studies that met inclusion criteria. And even after that, there were four studies that they had excluded because of various reasons and methodologies And there was one really big study with over 500,000 cycles that they ultimately excluded because they had determined that there was a very large uh, amount of heterogeneity. So ultimately, they found that the probability of live birth rate per cycle was significantly higher with conventional fertilization when compared with ICSI, but live birth rate per transfer did not necessarily show this. Increase as the difference had barely reached statistical significance with a confidence interval of 1.0 to 1.38. They looked at sub-analyses of poor responders uh, of, of note. They didn't describe how poor responders were defined, but they did find there was no difference in live birth rate. And also, it should be noted that some of the cohort studies that were excluded, uh, they excluded couples with fert failure. And so this may be somewhat of a selection bias in inflating the benefit of conventional IVF when looking at this population. So in conclusion, the results of this meta-analysis do not support the clinical relevance of using ICSI instead of conventional for non-male factor infertility cases. The authors discuss how their findings of increased fertilization rates are congruent with a prior meta-analysis by Johnson et al. from 2013, which I very commonly quote to patients. This is specifically an unexplained infertility patients, though, so it's a little bit different from this patient population. Again, this study does have unexplained infertility patients in it, but it's not the sole um, diagnoses for these patients. The authors wanted to point out that although an improved fertilization rate is a desirable objective in IVF, obviously. It does not necessarily translate into improved clinical outcomes such as live birth rate. And this is really difficult for me as a a clinician, and particularly in a patient with unexplained infertility, making that phone call to tell them that none of their oocytes fertilized, even though I know based off the studies, it may not necessarily improve live birth rate. But man, that is a hard, hard phone call to make. So I know at our center, we do Use ICSI um, for unexplained infertility. Uh, full disclosure, we we do it very commonly. Although I know it is not on that ASRM list that I mentioned earlier, but I do discuss the limitations in the literature. I do commonly discuss that Johnson et al. study. Um, but I'm curious, Pedro, what do you guys do at your institution? Do you guys commonly do ICSI for non-male factor?
1: feels like a loaded question because I imagine many of our listeners know that the developer of ICSI, uh, John Piero Palermo is the head of our andrology lab here at Cornell. So you can imagine we are not necessarily ICSI enthusiasts, but definitely believe in its full potential. Um, and we do use a lot of ICSI for both male and non-male factor infertility, as well as, uh, PGT cycles. And when we're using testicular sperm or frozen oocytes, we, we kind of use ICSI to its fullest extent. I think the issue with employing ICSI in a non-male factor infertility population is that you really have to understand what is important to your patients. And I think the clientele of patients that we take care of in Manhattan, a fertilization failure would feel like a devastating outcome for them. And that would not inspire kind of confidence and encouragement for them to continue to cycle with us. So I think we've taken the stance that we would like to avoid fertilization failure and we probably overtreat most patients with ICSI to avoid that absolute fertilization failure, but I think it's something that our patient population demands or expects of us when they come to see us here at Cornell. And I think that it, that answer can vary pretty dramatically depending on where you're counseling patients. A mandated state where there's significantly more restrictions on the use of ICSI for really only male factor infertility, fertility, and particularly in cases where the sperm counts are exceedingly low at the time of a fresh sample, sometimes just force your hand and take you out of the decision-making. So I think it's a really complex issue. I'm glad that we're talking about it and you're really seeing people be a lot more critical about some of these kind of long-held beliefs in our field. PGT for everyone, ICSI for everyone, the utility of having to give everyone HCG triggers when you could you can give them a dual trigger, a GnRH agonist peer trigger. It's it's high time that we reevaluate some of these long, long-held beliefs in our field. And I think ICSI is one that people are taking a, a critical eye to. I love what you said there. That explains a lot in terms of uh how ICSI
4: can account for maybe more than 50% of, of cycles. So that, that makes a lot of sense. But just from a, a scientific perspective, I don't know if it's doable, but I just have trouble with the design. And not that anybody could do better, but it's just all these, I don't know, hemming and hawing, I guess you'll call it. We had to, we had this huge range in the number of patients from 60 to half a million. Oh yeah. And then we eliminated the half a million because that was too heterogeneous. That to me seems a little bit like, well, you know, we need to come up with a better design and that, that Lancet, uh, recent article, I thought that was really a nice, uh, support for this. I don't know if you call it non-inferiority. Maybe that's the idea here is ICSI inferior. Um, or if it's a wash, what does it matter? That showed no difference, and and I think even there it's tough because what do you call no male factor? I mean, having no male factor, and, and the authors here acknowledge that it's it's a bit of a sliding scale, especially when you're looking at the meta-analyses, and all of these studies have a different definition for what what is male factor, and I don't think you can ever exclude it. You know, you can never say there is no male factor in this patient, so that's a bit of a of a, a challenge. And this would be my proposal. And maybe this just isn't practical on a patient level, but isn't there the idea to just whack up the eggs and do half ICSI and half IVF? I mean,
1: someone must've thought of that. Is there a study out there for that? Or is that just something that the patients would balk at? What do you think? I mean, the split oocyte study model, I think is a great one because it allows you to take a, the same cohort of eggs per patient and split them into two different interventions, be it a different culture media, a different route of fertilization, um, a different incubation system that you're testing out or different culture or incubation environments. So people definitely use the split oocyte study before. Um, Blake, are you familiar with any studies that have split oocytes and looked at ICSI versus insemination outcomes in non-male factor patients? I feel like the ones that come to my mind are ones where they've looked at um, for male factor indications.
3: Yeah, none come to my mind specifically. My partners prior to me joining this practice, they some of them did utilize that approach in certain very select patients. Um, I think they kind of steered away from it because our embryologists weren't too big of fans of it in terms of the amount of prep work that it goes into each patient for that. But um, in terms of the
1: data to support it, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'll conclude with this. I think ICSI is going to have a hard time going away. There are not a lot of things in our field that go away, despite really well done RCTs or multiple meta-analyses. I think particularly with the push towards automation in the embryology lab and reducing the workload on embryologists and andrologists, injecting a single sperm into a single egg is really a way to reduce manual labor and to streamline the process for a lot of labs. Um, so I think it's going to, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think the best do is continue to develop an evidence base for who specifically stands to benefit the most from this intervention, rather than try to undo it entirely and say no one needs it. I think we can all agree that likely severe male factor infertility makes these a perfect indication. But for everyone else, I think we need to refine that stance a little bit more and and really drill down on who, when, and how. All right, with that, I think we'll wrap it up. I wanted to thank Dalon Blake and Annika for joining us today on the podcast. As everyone knows, the conversation continues beyond our 30 minutes together on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And until we meet again, that's it for us. Bye-bye.
0: This concludes our episode of fertility and sterility on air brought to you by the fertility and sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American society for reproductive medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simoni and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the fertility and sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.